This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. My neighbor could be like looking into my backyard all the time. Is that going to hurt me? No. Is it creepy? Yeah. I don't want it. So it's like just, just in the same way. Like I, don't, I don't want my neighbors like creepily peering into my backyard and I would be upset if they were doing it. Yeah. Like that tech company is that creepy neighbor. And it's just, just because it doesn't hurt us today doesn't mean it's actually okay. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Microsoft. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, Ata Coleman Abroad. Today might actually have the longest tale of any conversation we've had on the show. Like, this show had its actual roots in 2020, and in fact, I looked and found the DM, and it says, <laughs> Hey, Bill, wondering, would you be interested in being a guest on my podcast and talking ed tech, media literacy, and student privacy? It would require a 50-ish minute Zoom call on a morning in the near future. I value your takes and insights on these matters greatly. February 19th, 2020 at 8.39 p.m. Well, we know what happened next. The world basically ended. And so basically two years later, on the back end of a pandemic that has been absolutely stupefying, we're finally here for a long-winded conversation. So Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, it's it's great to be here. That is that is surreal. Yeah, that, that's uh yeah, that's that's right about when uh most of us were realizing how bad things were gonna get. Yeah. I, I often tell my COVID story is, is that like I literally in late January was on a student trip in Shanghai and oh, wow. there was this doctor who like one of my, one of my kids' parents was like, oh, there's this virus. And I'm like, ah, stop worrying. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. And like <laughs> we get back and basically the country shuts down within a week. Uh, I had taken kids to Euro Disneyland. It shut down. And then I was like, what's happening in China? And then like a couple weeks later, I went on spring break to Bali, Indonesia. And while we were in Indonesia, school closed. And so like we flew back and it was a mess. And basically life was never normal again. Um, <laughs> so you're a privacy researcher and you're doing this conversation in a personal capacity. Um, yes. One of the things that I'm super curious about is, is when I meet people who are like nerds about topics, I wonder like how they get in this groove. So how did privacy become the thing that you're so passionate about? You know, I, I, I used to actually do things that were interesting. I, I was actually an English teacher and a history teacher for about 15 years. Um, and then I started kind of working with tech and started kind of my, my entree into, into tech period was actually doing things that increase learner agency and increase and center student voice. And this goes back to like, you know, again, like nineties when I was like 1990s when I was teaching. Um, and as I started doing this more and then started doing it more professionally, like I ran a software development shop for 10 years and I was never really a privacy person. I was always a student agency, learner agency, learner control person. And as kind of what people called web 2.0 came, you know, started becoming fashionable. 
And people are like, hey, let's sign up all of our middle school kids for this free service. It's going to go out of business in two weeks. It was really clear that nobody was ever actually looking at business models and nobody was reading privacy policies. And it just, so I actually just started reading privacy policies because I'm curious and have apparently no discernible hobbies. And then I was like reading policies. and It was clear that nobody else was actually reading these things because if you look at what the policies were saying, like all the things people were complaining about with, with Web 2.0 back in the day, it's like, oh, this company's going out of business or, oh, this company's being sold or, oh, this company is like selling our kids data. And like in the privacy policies, they spell out like, hey, we're going to sell your kids data. Like if we go out of business, like we're going to sell your kids data. We can start charging at any point. And it was clear that all of these teachers who were championing these services never actually understood how these services worked. And once I started doing it, I never actually stopped. And that's kind of what led me to where I am now. Yeah. It's one of those things where like classroom teachers are often so desperate for resources and like desperate for services that work online. So like, they're like, yeah, kid, just log with your Google account. Just log in, log in, log in. And then these companies are like cataloging all this information on our students. And it's interesting because like, I feel like most of us, no, let me back up. There's an element of surveillance that we volunteer to, we volunteer into that like I think is rampant in our society. And then people are paranoid about the wrong things, but that's later <laughs> on in the conversation. Uh, can you give me some examples of some of the, the student privacy issues that you've come across uh, besides like the company going away two weeks later that, that have been really shocking to you as an advocate? Oh, I mean, how much time we have? As long as you want. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, that's that that's an enormous question. Like, yeah. so I mean, there are really there, there are kind of two, two at least two distinct types. But like the two that kind of jump to the top are, there's like the stuff that happened because again, the vast. So just want to take a step back. Like, the yeah. vast majority of companies in this space are in this space because they want to do the right thing for kids, and the vast majority of kind of educator effort in this space is incredibly well-intentioned. They want to do the right thing by kids. So nobody goes into the space thinking like, oh, like I'm going to make a whole lot of money selling kids information today. Like that's, that's not how the space works. That's not what's happening. But the unintended consequences of some of these really well-intentioned decisions are often, that there are unintended consequences that people don't think about. And we need to start thinking about these things earlier. So you know, kind of the two, getting back to your, your actual question, um, sorry, took a tangent there, but like the two, the two things that jump out are like the, there's the stuff that happens because people don't know any better. And I'll give some examples of that. And then there's stuff that happens because it is embedded in a business model and justified away as being necessary to the service because it's embedded in the business model. And that second bucket of problems are, I think, far more pernicious because those are things that are supported by VC funding. Those are things that are intentionally supported by misguided marketing. And there's no evidence base supporting any of it, but there's a business rationale. So there's a lot of times where the needs of capitalism run headlong into and trample over the rights of students. And that's, I think, a significant problem that the sector needs to, needs to deal with and really fix before EdTech can actually start doing what EdTech has been claiming it does for the last two decades. Um, and you know, one example of I, I keep hoping for the day that all of the companies that were promising us, you know, anytime, anywhere on demand learning before the pandemic will fess up and say, God, we really screwed that up because right. all on demand, like in time, just as needed learning that they were telling us they had wired before the pandemic just completely and totally failed. 
So all these same companies are now like pitching like credit recovery services. And it's like, dude, it was your bad tech that helped get us here in the first place. So I think you need to take a seat. Um, but it, examples of the first kind of uh, problem, like I see things like a, APIs that are unencrypted, which means information flowing to and from that API can, can be intercepted in transit. Um, I see things like uh, whenever I see a user ID, um, like like in, in every service, like you sign up and you're on the back end to sign some type of identifier that the system understands you by. Um, if that's done well, that'll be randomized and it'll be like some, some kind of unique identifier. If it's done poorly, it's a number like one, two, three. Um, and whenever I see a user ID like U equals one, two, three, the first thing I do is go U equals one, two, four and see what turns up. U equals one, two, five, U equals one, two, two. And I'll see a lot of things like that where you can just like get information from username and, you know, username or user ID enumeration. So just basic stuff. And I shouldn't be seeing this stuff in 2022. I shouldn't have been seeing it in 2014 either. Um, but it's there. It's it's funny you mentioned the the on-demand learning thing and the online learning because like before the pandemic, there was people on the political right and in the school choice movement who like one of the school choice options was like online schooling, right? And they were like, they were the greatest advocates for online schooling. And they went from being the advocates for online schooling, schooling as being an alternative to virtual school to being like, you must reopen these schools right now, regardless of conditions. And like, it exposes, so I gave a talk at a real estate conference a while ago about automation. And one of the things I said is that like, if if your customers, I said to realtors, if your customers can get what you're giving them from an app, they'd be a fool not to, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. here's the thing is, is like a, a kid cannot get the lecture or the conversation or the seminar that I'm going to host tomorrow on the uh, impact of structural adjustment on developing states. Like that's not out there, right? So buying a house you can automate a lot of the process. Like a class on comparative politics, you can't automate and bot your way to it. But a bunch of folks thought they could and got proven kind of wrong in the big scheme of things. And they were like, back into school, everybody back into school. That, that's just a, a bugaboo for me that I want to throw in there. Well, and those arguments make a whole lot more sense when, when they are, I think, seen through the lens of how public education can be eroded as opposed mm -hmm. to how education can be improved. Um, because a lot of the arguments about, you know, for all the things you were describing, like one of the things they have in common, there are a lot of different threads, but one thread that runs through a lot of them is starving public education of public resources. So I think when we kind of shifted a little bit and when you evaluate an argument about what education should be through the lens of does this support or does this take from public education, I think we can start to have a better sense of where that argument might be coming from. Yeah, yeah, well, there's there's different threads I kind of want to bring in this conversation, and something I'm thinking about right now is like the extent to which I'm on, I'm on my own privacy journey. Yeah. So like, I I got off Instagram like a year ago, and I was just like, I'm out of this. Like, I read uh I read the book that oh man, the two reporters from New York Times wrote about Facebook, and I was like, I can't do this. I've been off Facebook <laughs> for a while. Yeah. Uh, living overseas, like I'm wedded to WhatsApp, and I can't get off WhatsApp, but I'd like to put WhatsApp to a new signal. But like, getting yeah. my friends on Signal is like that's good luck with that, right? Yeah. Uh, more recently, I stopped using uh, Google Search and I stopped using the Google Browser and switched yeah. to Brave Search and Brave Browser. And something yep. I found is like my search results are way, way worse with Brave. But like that's because they're not swimming in an ocean of my data, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 
I'm a 42-year-old man who now has has given Google basically every single fact about me from 2004 onward. And so like there you can put in requests to remove your data and whatever else, but like none of these conversations are being had with students in schools and none of these conversations and like forget about like K-12, like universities as well. Like unless you seek out kind of like issues around privacy and and seek out articles, books, people like yourself, these kind of conversations, like these things don't come apparent to you. And so what I want to pose to you is, is like, let's say that somebody out there thinks that we're being hyperbolic. What's the, what the danger of like students sharing information with these ed tech companies? What's the danger of our data just being out in the wind? Well, I mean, so there are a lot of questions like that. Like what's, what's the danger? What's the risk? What's the harm? Yeah. And um, those are really the conversations that industry wants us to have. Because having those conversations requires that we essentially uh, disprove a negative. Mm. And really, I think the, the way to flip and have a better conversation is to ask the question, what's the need for them to have this information? Okay, why new does, Yeah, new why question. does, like, why does the, well, well no, because, because, because the answer about what's the harm is like, you know, like we, we see racist uses of data all the time yeah we see bias we see bias in automated decision making all the time mm -hmm. um, we see it in real estate we see it in sentencing we see it in how ads are presented to people all of these things are are affected by biased algorithms and biased um biased machine learning models but this happens invisibly so we don't we don't get to analyze it. We don't get to have a deep insight to it. We can infer that this is happening when we look at the results, but that's really, you know, again, I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're back in Plato's cave at that point, looking at the shadow on the wall instead of looking at the real thing. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's why industry wants us to have the conversation about what's the harm, the right conversation, or at least a better conversation to have is like, what's the need? Because again, you talk about search results being being kind of worse on Brave than than on Google, and it's like I've been, I I switch back and forth between DuckDuck. I use DuckDuckGo for probably eighty to ninety percent of my searches, um, and Google for about ten percent of my searches. And a lot of um, a lot of what I use varies on actually what I'm searching for and yep. kind of the the work that I'm doing. Um, but I actually. I actually prefer having, for me personally, a richer set of, of results that might not be, I might miss having like the top thing be the thing I want. But when I go like, you know, I, I generally will go like, you know, two to three screens deep through results when I'm finding, when I'm, when I'm searching for stuff, because I often find that, you know, companies who are really good at gaming results will often show up at the top. That's not the same as organizations who are actually doing the work and have more, more interesting or irrelevant results. Mm -hmm. All a very long way of saying, these companies are collecting more information about us than they need. They're claiming the right to use it in ways that are really not, not limited in any kind of a meaningful way. And even those ridiculously small limits completely disappear if that company goes out of business or if there's a, a data transfer. This is happening all without our knowledge, largely, I mean, without anything approaching informed consent. So I don't actually, for me personally, like, I don't care if there's a harm. Like in the same way, like, again, like my neighbor could be like looking into my backyard all the time. Is that going to hurt me? No. Is it creepy? Yeah. I don't want it. 
So it's like just just in the same way, like I don't I don't want my neighbors like creepily peering into my backyard, and I would be upset if they were doing it. Yeah. Like that tech company is that creepy neighbor, and it's just just because it doesn't hurt us today doesn't mean it's actually okay. That's really well said. Uh, so let me pose then the question I was going to ask in the framing that you're talking about. Then, yeah. Uh, what is the utility of all the data and oh, and actually really fast. So framing for listeners here. Uh, with my switch to Brave browser, one of the things that it yeah. does is it tells me how many trackers and cookies it's blocked in a given day. Yeah. And so like I've been using Brave, I think, on my phone since like mid-January, and it's blocked somewhere around 17,000 trackers. Yeah. So what kind of data are they collecting and why are they trying to collect that data from us? So the data they're going to collect with that is going to vary tracker by tracker. Every like tracker A is going to be different than tracker B. Also, interestingly, the uh, the count that you're getting of trackers being blocked on Brave is actually probably an undercount of what would actually be hitting you if you didn't have the initial blocking. Because mm -hmm. the way a lot of these services work, you'll have uh, an initial tracker, which will spawn calls to like five to, in some cases, like two to three dozen other trackers. Yeah. So when you block the initial track, when you block the initial tracker, you're also actually often blocking like up to, you know, two or three dozen subsequent trackers, which don't get counted in what Brave is showing you because they're doing a good job blocking the initial one. So you're actually getting more benefit for that blocking than is actually showing up in there in the, in, in all, in, in all likelihood. Like this, this is what I've seen, what I've done. I've never done an analysis with Brave, but I've done analysis with other trackers and I'm assuming Brave works in a, in a similar way. Um, but they can, these trackers can collect a significant range of information. Like some, some just send straight over the wire. I mean, I, I've seen, I've seen trackers collect email address, phone number, latitude, longitude. Um, if you look at actually what is made available through uh, the APIs of different browsers, or different services, they can collect everything from your battery usage stats to the screen resolution of your of your device, the size of your browser. Um, they can collect information about how your browser actually renders graphics by spinning up a, a small image and having your your device render it. And the reason they're doing that is that they want to be able to connect an identity to a device. And then they also want to be able to connect multiple devices to a person. Because that last piece, the cross-device uh, cross tracking, that's the grail of, uh, of, of ad tech tracking. Because that way they know that like I'm Bill Fitzgerald on this phone, I'm Bill Fitzgerald on this computer, I'm Bill Fitzgerald on this tablet. Um, so there's a range of information that different trackers collect. But it, it's, <sighs> their reasons for collecting it will, will vary, but all of it boils down to being able to tie a person or a device to an action on the web. You used a phrase that I haven't heard before that sounds extra diabolical. And it's one of those things that like, of course that exists, but I hadn't really thought about how, how it exists. The term ad tech, like how <laughs> shockingly big of an industry is ad tech? I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that question well. Um, um, I mean, it's, I mean, the vast majority of the vast, the vast majority of websites on the internet have some form of, of ad tech running on them. Um, I mean, I, let me, let me pull this up. I, I did a recent scan of um, 30 popular, uh, 30 kind of popular mainstream news sites. 
Um, and uh, the number of trackers on there, um, just let me pull up a quick count here. Yeah, so basically during the 30 sites that I tested, um, 628 third-party companies were called and um, 522 were tracked to about 355 owners. So yeah, I mean, there are, there are literally thousands of companies um, in, the, in the ad tech or data broker business. Um, the differentiation between an ad tech vendor and a data broker is often largely semantic, although people within the industries would probably disagree. Um, but they're all in the business of collecting data and using data to then process and automate decisions. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, we would have a much faster internet if we didn't have ad tracking because a lot of the uh, bandwidth that gets consumed in every page load is not actually, it's not the content that we're seeing that's chewing up bandwidth. It's actually all the ad tracking that accompanies that page load that uh, slows down the web. Are any of those ad tracking companies names that listeners would know? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, Google, Amazon, Oracle, but uh, yeah, I mean, all, I mean, big name companies. Um, and then a bunch of companies that we've never heard of, like Beeswax, Trade Desk, um, these smaller companies, but these smaller companies are used on like thousands of sites and have really detailed information about us. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny you say that. Cause I think that I'm still in the trap that I was kind of laid into in college where I think about Google's a tech company, but like I yeah. need to reframe my thinking that Google is basically an ad company. Like all of their services exist to sell me ads. Yeah. I mean, Google, Google is a data broker with a search service and a video service as their front end. I'm going to ask you the same question, probably two different ways, but really I'm curious your thoughts on this. Uh, the first one is, is that like, what are some of the things in the media and the popular discourse that like tech journalists, uh, tech journalists at large and tech journalists in general are like getting wrong in their communications to consumers? Um, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about tech journalism writ large because okay. there's such a, there's such a range of quality in tech journalism. Um, one, one thing I would love to see tech journalists in general do a better job of, and and some do this really well, but like the, there are a range of stories in, in people covering tech that like tech is made and successful tech is made by lone geniuses toiling away yeah. coming up with a brilliant idea and delivering a technology that highlights that idea. And that that is just such a dangerous and pernicious myth about tech that allows really bad tech to get flattering coverage in a way that just, it does. when you look at the tech, there are just harms built into how the tech is implemented that nobody, that nobody questions. Um, I mean, that's, that's a huge question. There are probably people who answer a lot better than I, than I can, but that's, that's, that's something that's been bugging me recently. Yeah. So the other version of that question is, is where are the tinfoil hat people right? <laughs> As an honorary member of the tinfoil hat club, I would have to say always. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, 
when I think of tinfoil hat people, I, I think of folks saying that like, you know, 5G is causing satanic baby rituals. Like that's for me, like that's, that's the tinfoil yeah. hat crowd. So let's, let's um, reel in. Let's go like, let's go like plastic hat club or like uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> aluminum foil hat. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it is, it is very fair to be skeptical of uh, data collection by companies. It is very fair to not trust a company's promise that they are going to treat your data with respect. Um, because we see examples of that not happening all the time. And again, it's not, it's not through intent. It's often just through accident and human error, but the impact is the same. And this is why kind of what we were talking about earlier, the idea of, of, of thinking about is, you know, what is the need for somebody to have this information? Because the one thing you can be completely sure of is that if a company doesn't have data, they can't have a leak that impacts that data. Like if you don't, if you don't have something, you can't, you can't breach it. So the idea of data minimization and being really intentional about what you collect and even more intentional about what you store can prevent a lot of these problems. Makes a ton of sense. It's it's super interesting the way that data companies and ad companies try to sell you on like ads. Like there's a setting on Twitter basically where they're like do you want to see more relevant ads? And it's like, actually, no, I don't want to see ads at all, to be clear. Like, I don't want more relevant yeah. ads. And so since I have that set, I basically get a lot of ads in Arabic for like women's health stuff here because like that's what's on Twitter here. But yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how when you deprive companies of your data, you get worse services. But that's the whole thing that like, there's that old saying, it's, it's a cliche at this point, like if you're not paying for a service, you're the service. And so like the, the ad sense and the, and the information I'm not giving them is basically causing them to give me worse ads. But like those worse ads are actually better because it means they have less of my data. Well, and this, this whole idea of like, of a better ad or a more relevant ad, like mm -hmm. these companies are so whiny. Like, just get, get over it. Like, you know, if I, if I want to know something, I will look for it. Like, I don't need you to tell me what I'm interested in. I don't need you to define my interests. So like the whole idea of a relevant ad, like that is just, can I swear on this? Shoot. Like that is just such bullshit. Like, you know, I mean, the idea that they need to collect a huge amount of my information so they can target me with a different pair of sneakers. like. Like, do you think I'm stupid? Like, come on now. Like, that is just, like, I know that their marketing company needs to say that, but that is just complete and total crap. And they try and, they try and come and like, oh, we're really trying to take care of you. It's like, you're not trying to take care of us. You're trying to run a business. You don't care if you take care of me or not. You care if you sell ads. So don't give me this bullshit about like, oh, we really want to give you relevant ads because they don't want to give us relevant ads. They want to sell as much advertising as possible. And there's, so it's like, get over yourself, just get over it. Like figure all of these people that are supposedly the smartest people in the room can't figure out a business model that isn't predicated on over collecting data. Like those things can't be true at the same time. Either figure it out and respect your users or don't pretend that you actually need to abuse my data to, to run your business. Because if you can't figure out how to run your business without abusing my data, maybe you shouldn't be in business. Here, here. Uh, let's take a break here. And when we come back, I want to talk to you. I want to learn a bit from you about some of your personal data privacy, privacy practices, like how you protect your own privacy online. Yeah. And then also, I'm really curious about what you think about the current regulatory environment and like what needs to be passed. <laughs> I think that, that'll, that'll be a fun conversation. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll be back. 
Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Microsoft. The Puget Sound region is experiencing historic growth. And while this presents a remarkable opportunity for the region, it also creates challenges. Microsoft is committed to our region and everyone in it, working in partnership with the community to improve environmental sustainability, affordable housing, efficient transportation, and high-quality education. These issues are fundamentally connected. Smart transportation systems reduce our region's carbon footprint. Affordable housing allows people to live in communities where they work. High-quality education prepares young people for great jobs and a bright future. Our region is remarkably complex and diverse. We need policy solutions that reflect it. This is all part of Microsoft's goal to empower every person and organization in Washington to achieve more. To learn more about Microsoft's work in this area, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. My thanks to Microsoft for their support of Channel 253. And we are back. I want to sincerely thank you for downloading the episode today. Uh, it's funny, we're talking about data. Uh, the Nerd Farmer podcast is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Uh, we're a network of podcasts that don't collect your data. We instead tell you stories. And we bring voices and perspectives and points of view and have conversations that you're not going to hear elsewhere. And I like what we do on the show and the network, and I support it personally, and I think you should as well. Uh, I'm going to ask you, if you're enjoying the show, to think about becoming a member of Channel 253. It costs $4 a month or $40 a year. And if you you become a member, you get access to our member-only Slack. We're also, we're not tracking your data, although Slack might, but I can't help that. That's not my fault. Uh, in addition to getting the member benefit of having access to the Slack, which is always fascinating, you also get access to Doug's Off the Record podcast, and him and I are going to record one tonight uh, after this conversation with Bill. Uh, Let's say you're already a member and you want to help the show in a different way. Let's do this. Uh, if you like the conversation we're having right now with Bill, send this to somebody and be like, hey, check out this conversation with Nate and Bill. Like, Bill's really smart and Nate's corny and old. Uh, or if you don't like what you're hearing right now, send me an email and tell me why. Uh, you can reach me at nerdfarmpod at gmail.com. All right, Bill, let's go back to it. So... I mentioned earlier on that I'm on a privacy journey. Like I'm, I've gotten off several services. Um, I did that. Oh gosh, one of the things I did is, is I, I basically looked to all the things I granted permissions to for, on Google and basically yeah. undid all 144 of those over time. Yeah, uh, I, I've talked about switching my browser and my search. So like I'm on my own journey. What are some of your practices that like? Well, let's do it in two different ways. If, if somebody is talking about data privacy for their children or for their child, uh, what are some practices you would suggest to them? Um, okay, yeah, a few things here. And uh, data privacy for kids is a whole, that's a whole separate ball of wax. Um, the one thing I will say straight up, and, uh, and there are a lot of people who get annoyed when I say this, and um, frankly, I don't care because they're wrong. Um, but don't, uh, don't, don't put surveillance tech on, on your kid's phone. Um, stuff like circle, like avoid that like the plague. Um, there are both technical reasons and emotional reasons for that. The technical reasons for that, um, and again, you know, like circle, life 360, like all of these safety apps are sold because they sell parents fear. Life 360 was recently caught selling location information on all of their customers to data brokers. 
So this safety that you were getting for your kid, this again, quote unquote, safety you were getting for your kid was subsequently resold and um, used by a bunch of other data brokers. So your kid's location became some other company's asset. When you sell, um, Life360 has discontinued that, uh, the markup um, journalistic outlet that is just awesome that you should totally read, did a great series of stories about this over the last few months and Life360 discontinued the, the service, but they didn't discontinue it because it was wrong. They discontinued it because they got caught doing it. So all of these services that sell safety or a lot of these services that sell safety, they collect a huge amount of information about your kid, your family. And in the process of keeping them safe, you are giving a third-party service a really rich data trail about details in your kid's life and your family's life. All of that information, if you read their policies, could potentially be subpoenaed by, by um, like during a legal process. You are creating an additional element of risk if your family ever goes through a divorce, if there's ever any type of uh, law enforcement activity and they want to figure out if your kid was at Situation X, great, your quote-unquote safety service now makes it easier for law enforcement to track your kid. Um, we don't need to imagine too much to uh, think about ways that could be abused. So first... First thing, if you know, thinking about kind of privacy of individuals and privacy of families, don't use surveillance tech on your kid. It's bad technically. It's also bad emotionally because when you tell your kid that you are tracking them because you love them and care about them, jump ahead 10 years, that's a lot like what a stalker says. That's a lot like what an, somebody says in an abusive relationship. So Privacy starts by normalizing agency and normalizing direct communication about risk and what matters. You can't substitute tech for that. So a lot of times people will talk about like, well, technically, what can I do to improve my privacy? And the first answer is actually a lot of it's behavioral shifts that have nothing to do with tech Mm -hmm. or open communication with the people you love. (laughs) That's where privacy starts. So that's kind of my first kind of grounding thing with all this. Um, On a technical place, like on your phone, go through any apps you have and just delete all the ones. So first off, list all the apps that you don't use. Delete those apps off your phone, then go to their website and cancel your account. Um, That gets rid of a lot of cruft. You need to do those two steps because deleting the app on your phone doesn't actually cancel your account. Um, But deleting it off your phone reduces a potential privacy uh, or security vector, security risk, if there's ever an issue with that app. Um, What you described about um, eliminating and revoking permissions for all the services that you you have, uh, that's a very good step. Um, I also recommend avoiding federated login, like all the sites that have login with Google or login with Facebook. Don't do that because that creates a centralized data trail for these third-party companies. I strongly recommend getting a password manager like 1Password and using that to manage your different passwords on sites because that also stops you. I'm just laughing because I use LastPass and my wife hates when she's like, what's the Netflix password? And I'm like, it's 27 characters. Here you go. And she's like, ah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So for for that, you actually want to get a a family account so you can actually share those. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean... um, so yeah, I mean, having having some kind of a password manager, um, it, it's also really, yeah, you can either, 
you can either prevent people from watching your Netflix account or you can give them access to your thing and, and streamline it. But but yeah, either where it gets really hard is when you have that 27 character password and you have to plug it in on, on your television. Um, yes. But hey, so it goes. Um, that was her three nights ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I volunteer to be the one who always does that for all the obvious reasons. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you avoiding federated login and using a, uh, using a password manager. Um, yeah. if you have sensitive information and, um, and you want to protect that, uh, two factor authentication is, is something that I also, also recommend. I, I personally recommend doing it with a device like a, a YubiKey, um, and which is basically an external, it's an external piece of hardware you can get that. You just basically plug it into a USB slot, press on it, and it it authenticates. Um, a lot of folks will use authentication apps that they connect to their phone. I'm not a not a fan of those, but multi-factor authentication is is a great step. And however you do it is better than generally better than not doing it. Um, Wait, so does the hierarchy go uh, two factor with a text is like better than nothing, but not that great. The app is better than two factor, and then like a hardware authentication is like the best. Yeah, I mean, text-based multi-factor authentication is, it's problematic in a few different ways. Realistically, most of us, if we're getting targeted with an attack that is tar that's affecting our ability to receive text, like, then, yeah, there's, there's something going on there. But re most of the services that support text-based also, also support app-based auth. Yeah. So if you have a choice, go with the app-based off. Um, and, and wait, wait, by the way, really fast. There's somebody listening to this that is going like, you know, Nate and Bill sound really paranoid about this. Y'all, like, this is real. Like, we, we had a conversation a couple months ago. Like, law enforcement surveils this podcast. Like, literally, uh, local and state law enforcement are listening to episodes of this conversation. In particular, I have black activists on the show to talk about, like, anti-police anti brutality and stuff like that. And so, if you're hearing this and going like, oh, these guys are really paranoid or whatever. No, 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 my beloved. Like, this is reality. Like, we are being surveilled by bad actors all the time. Like, don't get me started on, 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 on all of the different, like, security vectors that, like... That that we we've had to deal with like as as over the last couple of years like my my wife was harassed by white supremacists when she was running she was a co-founder to come against Nazis and like the reason why she's safe is is that white supremacists were so stupid they couldn't figure out that Hope Teague that Teague wasn't some guy's first name and looking for looking for long person and so just putting that out there too uh, but and and actually but, and you mentioned so two other things mm -hmm. not use biometric ID to unlock your phone. Do not use fingerprint to unlock your phone. Do not use face ID to unlock your phone because it's easy to take your finger, boom, put it to your phone and force that to happen. Mm. Use a passcode. Um, and on your phone, um, I know that iPhones have a, um, you know, after so many login attempts, your phone gets wiped. Make sure that that is set um, because you do not need to give your, you do not need to give your password in a virtually all circumstances. So avoid doing that. And the fingerprint and face ID can often be used to unlock your phone more or less against your will or can accidentally happen. Um, so avoid, avoid doing that. Um, on a less extreme place, like getting a, uh, again, using a, um, privacy-based app on your phone, like again, using something like the DuckDuckGo app or using something like the Brave I think Brave and um, Firefox Focus on your phone are also good, good, good options that come with um, with 
some ad blocking capabilities um, on your on your desktop. Like use um, use uBlock Origin to uh, to to manage to manage ads. Uh, think about switching to a search engine like DuckDuckGo or Brave or even something like StartPage that gives um, proxied Google results. Um, all options that because you're not trying to eliminate being tracked because that's not possible. You're trying to reduce the size of your data trail. And if you think about, again, I mean, just in the same way, like, you know, I, I don't want to get sunburned, but that doesn't mean I don't go to the beach. It means that I yeah. use sunscreen. Um, if you think of privacy protection and security protection as not risk elimination, but risk reduction, it's a, uh, it's a much kind of easier and more, more achievable model. The other thing that I really want to highlight again is, you know, I, you're not going to solve this overnight. And there are going to be a lot of the changes you're making are not technical changes. They are behavioral changes and they take time and you're not going to be able to do it 100% of the time, but you will be able to do it some of the time. And just starting to think about it now means you're going to be improving over time. If you want to get really serious about it, like set up a plan, say, Hey, like I want to, these are the things that I want to do and start figuring out, you know, what's actually possible to do. Like maybe, maybe you can't get off Facebook because that's the only way of communicating with family. How do you minimize your use of Facebook? So you're a lot less exposed there. Um, even something like uh, just clearing your uh, browser cookies regularly. Um, if you don't know how to do that, there's a bunch of guides online. Just put in your browser name, clear cookies, and you'll get more guides than you, than you can like, than you can know to do it. Uh, there's a podcast that I've recently fallen in love with called Tech Won't Save Us. Yep. And they had an episode in the lead up to the holidays basically saying like, don't give the gift of surveillance. And I feel like the 800 pound gorilla in this conversation we haven't talked about yet are like ring cameras and the way we surveil ourselves. Uh, for the uninitiated, can you talk about the relationship between Ring and Amazon and also the way in which Ring is cooperating with law enforcement agencies? Yeah, I mean, there's... There's a whole lot of information about this. I mean, one of the uh, one of the people I strongly recommend following for, um, I mean, there there are a bunch of people writing about this, but um, Chris Gilliard, who's um, hyper visible yes. on Twitter, has a lot of great um, threads and content about this. But yeah, I mean, the ring camera. I mean, in really any all all video doorbells are elements of a. Uh, of surveillance and tools like video doorbells, license plate readers that are used by a lot of homeowners associations. What, what you're having here is kind of private surveillance tools that are sold by private companies that have arrangements with law enforcement to get data from individuals to law enforcement mm -hmm. in, in a streamlined way that often actually sidesteps the need for subpoenas or any type of permission request from law enforcement. These are often used in ways that are overtly racist. And, you know, a lot of the conversation, you know, people talk about porch pirates, which, you know, to my read feels more than a little bit racist the way it's often used because it's sure. usually, it's usually talk. It's usually, again, I mean, you have, again, I mean, if, Feel free to kind of take take a look at that that on on your own, but there's so much fear being used to sell people on the fact that surveillance is necessary to keep us safe, and that is embedded in an approach 
think just like a view on life that like that it is such a simplified view of why these things happen. And the idea that if we can just like watch everybody enough to keep them in check, but really this is just, you know, if we think about it through the lens of resource hoarding, like I'm going to watch you to make sure you don't take my stuff. And you think about who owns, who owns these devices, Mm -hmm. who gets access to law enforcement and who gets believed by law enforcement. There is an embedded system of privilege in the way these things are used, in the way these things are weaponized, that often doesn't get discussed. It is made all the more pernicious because Amazon in particular has a long track track record of partnering with law enforcement to sell and market these devices. And they will give talking points to law enforcement on, on on how to talk about these things. And they've had to close some of their some of their um, access doors on their apps because of, of public reaction. But again, they didn't do this because they recognized the problem. They do th- they did this because they got caught. Yeah, on an upcoming episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk to a guy named Danny Kane. He's a bookseller in Kansas. Yeah. And he wrote a book called How to Resist Amazon and Why. And one of the points that just really stuck with me in the book is, is that like, you couldn't design a worse supervillain than Jeff Bezos. Like you have, like literally you have the richest man in the world who owns Amazon, which is delivering goods to basically everybody. He also owns Alexa, which is recording and storing our voices and our requests constantly. He owns Ring, which is recording our movements and cooperating with law enforcement. He owns Blink, which I hadn't even heard about until I tweeted about this. And he's like, well, look at Blink, which is like home automation. And then the Washington Post, which like oftentimes pays lip service to like the agenda of big tech in the in the opinion pages. Like if 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 you presented that like in a film, you would go like, that's too kooky, but we've allowed it to happen basically like uh, with, with, with no consequence, which, you know, yeah. honestly, that, that brings me kind of to where I want to kind of, I think, land this plane at is like, so I have a couple of colleagues who came to my school here in the Gulf from Europe. Yeah. And they oftentimes talk about European privacy laws and how they're different. And I think people listening to the show might remember like, oh, about a year and a half ago where basically every website in the world was like, you must now accept our cookies anew. And like basically asking for the information about the cookies and the tracking and all that stuff. Um, how does privacy law around our data differ in Europe? And then what are some ways we could move America more in that direction if we think that's the right direction to go to? So... Again, so the the main European privacy law is GDPR, um, or yeah. you know, the, um, and I am I am not an expert on GDPR. I have a rudimentary understanding of it. So there are other people who are much better versed to speak about that than I am. Um, the closest analog we have in the states to GDPR is California's privacy law, CCPA. Mm-hmm. Um, I I am going to restrict my comments to CCPA. Because I understand that I understand that better than GDPR, but I want to caveat what I'm saying with the reality that I am not an expert in either of these. Um, my my sense from talking with people who are better versed in the regulatory environment than I am, and from reviewing these uh, reviewing CCPA in particular myself, is that regulation is still lagging behind what's needed. Uh, Tech industry employs 
armies of lobbyists that are very well paid, very aggressive, and they they have seats at the tables where these laws are written. They have seats at the table when regulations governing these laws are written and do a pretty effective job gutting um, gutting some of the teeth that uh, that that could actually could help us. We we need we need privacy regulation, but whenever there's a state trying to pass privacy laws, and we saw this in Virginia, like Virginia passed a privacy law that was heavily in, influenced by Amazon. Um, and on the one hand, they talk about the need for privacy regulation. You know, they have on one they talk about the need for privacy regulation, but then their lobbyists gut the actual privacy regulation that they say we need. So there is a a level of hypocrisy that exists between what they say we want to do and what they end up supporting. Uh, Facebook slash Meta does this as well. Like, you know, they say, well, we need to get regulation on this. And then they make sure that any regulation we get on this is actually toothless because that allows them to say, like, look, we're passing privacy laws and we're good partners here. But the reality is these privacy laws don't actually protect things in any meaningful way and provide an additional fig leaf. Like one of the ways that this has manifested itself with the passage of CCPA is um, in the in the health space um, or in the health adjacent uh, tech space. There are a lot of companies that before CCPA passed said that they were not HIPAA compliant entities. And, you know, HIPAA is a, a medical, it's really an insurance privacy law, but it, it puts some limits on how companies can use information. With the passage of CCPA, these same companies are now switching to saying, oh, like we need, we are HIPAA compliant and we comply with HIPAA. And as a result of that, we can't agree to your data deletion request because HIPAA requires that we, that we retain it. So companies pick and choose from this regulatory, this regulatory environment. And these, these regulations are only as meaningful as enforcement actions are under them. And it's expensive to get an enforcement action. And tech companies have a lot of money to pay for lawyers. Like these laws are only going to be as good as the enforcement that comes with them. And because tech companies have so much money, they have a lot of legal firepower. So regulations end up being, they might be on the books, but they're sure not enforced. I said exit question a moment ago, but it's actually one more question. Okay. Um, you shown a bright, well, actually let's back up. So earlier on in the episode, you, you were talking about like how sometimes, how most of the times the tech companies are like magnanimous and trying to do the right thing. They're just kind of messing with it. You exposed a fascinating thing this weekend about a, uh, something that was set up to help children uh, who were like coming out of Ukraine in the conflict there. Can you just talk about that for a minute? Cause I think it's a great example we're talking about. Uh, yeah. Um, so there's, there's a lot of folks that wanted, there's a lot of folks that want to do good in the tech industry, but they see, they see things through the narrow lens of what can be implemented via tech. And they often don't think about the way things that they can be gamed. Um, and there's, there's a great, um, Twitter thread. It was actually this Twitter thread was kind of put out on like February 26th, I think, right after the uh, invasion happened. But it talks about the tendency of people in tech to want to build things to fix stuff. Um, and often, like the barriers to fixing stuff, it's 
it's not a tech issue. It's a time and resources issue. And it's that these problems are incredibly thorny. So what happened here is, again, really well-intentioned people built a site to support refugees getting connected with housing. But there was no... And, and to be clear, there are already other organizations on the ground that were doing this before this site was built. Like this site was not actually filling a, a void. This yeah. site is in addition to professionals already on the ground doing this work. And this site was created like a couple of people at an Ivy League university, of course, were like, hey, we can fix this with a website. And they essentially built a, like a classified ads type site where anybody can show up and create a listing to house a refugee. And there's no there was no identity verification. I saw this, and as soon as I saw it, I was, because like I, I evaluate a lot of tech. I see really bad ideas, poorly implemented all the time. Um, and I went and looked at this site. I was like, God, not, I, I can't be seeing this. This is not, this is not, I, I couldn't believe that I was seeing this because this site had been covered in CNN. This site had gotten a lot of really complimentary and unquestioning news coverage by major mainstream outlets. Yeah. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, I can't, I can't be seeing this. It can't be right. So I went and I created a, a dummy account and in the space of about 30 seconds, I was at a page where I could actually have created a listing. Like I stopped short of creating a listing because there are ethics when you do evaluations like this. And one hard and fast ethical rule is when you are in a sensitive situation, you don't do anything that could potentially create an interaction with another human. Um, because I didn't even want to create a sample thing because people even though this site was implemented poorly, people are still coming to it and I don't want to create additional clutter. But the reality was I was able to get to a listing page with no identity check in about 30 seconds. So at that point, I started looking at, at listings and, and context on this too, is I've been, I've been doing some work um, with a group of volunteers, kind of triaging resources for being, um, people who are refugees in Ukraine. And in some of these groups, there have been people on who are actually on on the border, on the ground, working with um, working with people like it's all right, man. It's all right. It's this is a yeah. I so well, yeah. No, well, I mean yeah. yeah go ahead. Like, just please. I know you're going to edit this. Please, just like yeah. <laughs> like. But like this shit's real, like, yeah. and there's trafficking happening on the border and the people on the ground are overwhelmed. And a site like this comes a lot. Like I went and looked at listings on the site and like there were listings for, and again, and, and so, some of these are probably legit, but like there are listings saying like, I can take a mother with a 12 to 14 year old child. Um, I'm looking like another one said, like, I have, I have room for a girl. Like just listings that might be legit, but with no check. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's dangerous. Like people, people are getting hurt and what this site is doing, it's creating a vacuum on the ground where refugees are coming in and people don't know where they're going. And 
this is where like without identity, without, and there are sites on the ground that are actually, they're vetting, they're vetting hosts. They're making sure that refugees are only placed with, re, with reputable hosts. But with the level of trafficking that's happening, like this site open, it just, it creates problems and it creates risk that is, um, it's well-intentioned, but it's really dangerous. And the thing that kind of brought this into focus is that as this site was like, after I saw it and after I saw the issues with it, I went and looked at the um, social media posts around kind of the people creating it. And like, they got really good advice from people on the ground before they launched the site saying like, please like work with us on the ground. We're doing this, collaborate with us. That they totally ignored and like, no, we're going to do it. And then, and it's like posts like we're gonna we're gonna have this site live in 24 hours. And it's like when you are launching a site in 24 hours that you are putting into the middle of a war zone, you have an obligation to be incredibly careful with what you're doing. And like I saw this site and I initially just like I just kind of sat with it for a while, but then I just and I I wasn't gonna say anything at first because it's out there, you know, it's, but then I just couldn't stop. And just the ethical underpinnings of it were really problematic. And the fact that they had aggressively disregarded and kind of mocked people who gave them really good advice, um, especially one, there was, there were a bunch of people that gave him really good advice, but there was um, an academic, um, like an activist and a lawyer on the ground in in Poland who gave them pretty much the exact same feedback I did two weeks before I did. And she was completely ignored. And just, it was like, just like the sexist element of it, the danger of it, and like the blatant disregard for advice of experienced professionals on the ground. Like tech is not neutral. There are ethical obligations we have. And if you can't understand the way tech can be harmful for the exact people you want to help, and you ignore the people who are actually best positioned to help you understand that, like that's wrong. That's dangerous. I think we'll leave it there, man. Uh, I appreciate this conversation. Like I learned a lot. I feel like I'm better than most with my practices, but I heard a bunch of things I'm going to implement and kind of start doing my own life. If people want to learn from you more online, Bill, where can they look? Um, funnymonkey.com is where I uh, post most of the things that I'm, uh, that I'm talking about. Um, I don't recommend anybody follow me on Twitter, but I'm also on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill, thank you, man. And I, I look forward to having you back on in the future. Hey, it was a great conversation. Thank you. All right. Well, con if ever, y'all, uh, if you have the opportunity to get a booster, get a booster. You are protecting your loved ones. Uh, prosecute the police that killed Manuel Ellis and go Sounders. Channel 253 is supported by Microsoft. Microsoft is committed to civic conversations like those on Channel 253 that inform and empower Washington communities. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash Microsoft in Washington. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Somebody was like, how do you meet all these guests? And I'm like, <laughs> literally the entire show is my Twitter DMs. Like, I basically take it to email for like... Say yes to the dress. Okay, we're good. We're good. Yeah. We're good. So, all right. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies. Give me the mic. We Art Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Taco Man. Flounder's B-Team. Crossing Division. Citizen Tacoma. And What Say You? This is Channel 253.